Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is Kim Spencer. Kim's book, Weird Rules to Follow is a finalist for the 2023 Sheila A. Egoff Children's Literature Prize. On this episode, Kim talks about how her book went from a memoir to a middle grade novel that's having an impact with young readers. Kim starts our episode with a reading from Weird Rules to Follow. I am... So glad to be here with you, Megan, and I'm actually in Prince Rupert right now, and I have been enjoying the summer here, and I've been canning, jarring fish for the last week. Seems like everybody in town is doing it. I keep seeing posts. Uh, So I thought it would be appropriate to read the opening story, Salmon Season, 1985. Prince Rupert is well known for rain and fishing. I've never known anything but. Like rain, salmon has always been a part of my life, in the ocean, on the stove, in the refrigerator, or in my belly. Most people say they like summer for the sun, but for coastal natives, summer means one thing, salmon, the sockeye salmon season. It's an important time of year because that is how most native people earn their living. It's also when we preserve our food for the winter. Our small town begins stirring with excitement as native people from surrounding villages arrive. Third Avenue bustles with cars and people, The adults seem happier when they're busy and there's work to do. The men go out commercial fishing, and the women, my mom and aunties included, put in long hard hours at the fish cannery, which runs shifts around the clock. It's the middle of summer. I go to visit my mom at the cannery on her lunch break, and even though we're outside, the smell of raw fish is everywhere. I wrinkle my nose. Ew, it smells. My mom corrects me. That's the smell of money. And there's money to be made, all right. Last payday, half the cannery workers got paid for overtime work, and there was a closure for fishing after an exceptionally good run, which meant fishermen received advances as well. The banks in Prince Rupert ran out of money. All of them. Everyone in town was talking about it. When my mom and I were walking down 3rd Avenue that day, we bumped into someone she knew. Did you hear about the banks, they asked? Were you able to cash your check? Thankfully, she had cashed it. I noticed adults often carry 50 or $100 bills during the summer months, and you can tell, it makes them feel good. Those rich brown and vibrant red bills are commonplace. We preserve our salmon in the summer. Food fish, the adults call it. It's a staple item that sustains us throughout the long winter months. Grandma always prepares ahead, well before she even gets fish. She gathers jars together to clean and then counts how many empty cases she has. If she happens to be short, she goes searching in our basement for more jars. This is an adventure in itself, as you have to go outside and the stairs leading down to our unfinished basement are overgrown with grass and a build up a slippery moss. Grandma's older and a bit heavier, and it shows in her movements. None of that deters her. House dress and slippers on, she makes her way down there. I follow along as I know she needs the help. This time, the trek is worth it. Ooh, Grandma says as her eyes shimmer at all the jars she finds. That's mostly how she communicates, through her eyes. Several of my cousins are at our house at any given time in the summer while their parents work at the cannery. They've followed us to the basement and have gathered at the door. This pleases Grandma as extra hands are always welcome. She starts to pass the mason jars over to us grandkids one by one. 
and like an assembly line of little ants, we make our way back upstairs. When someone from our reserve drops off a catch of sockeye salmon, Grandma is ready. She turns the kitchen table into a makeshift workstation by covering with flat and cardboard box. Grandma is strong and has big arms and hands, but I can see removing the fish heads and then getting and cleaning them isn't an easy job. I stand quietly observing, being sure not to get in the way. The fish heads go to one pile, and if there are eggs inside, they go to another. Then she cuts the fish into even smaller sections, holding up a slab of salmon against a pint or quart jar, making sure the cut is the right size. This time, she lets me measure and pour the salt into the jars. This is an important job, as the amounts have to be exact. Then she wipes down the mouth of the jars, fastens the lids, and into the boiler they go. Grandma keeps the fish heads for baking. She never throws them out. Don't waste seafood, she often says to me. I'm used to her saying things like that. There are so many rules around not misusing or wasting our traditional foods. The two of us eat the fish heads as an afternoon snack. My cousins would sooner play outside than eat fish heads. We don't mind. More for us. I sit at the kitchen table watching closely as Grandma pulls the baking pan out of the oven and carefully places it on the table. There are almost a dozen salmon heads on the thin pan. I stare at them curiously. Their eyes slightly bulge from the heat, their tiny little sharp teeth still intact. I reach out to try and touch one of them. Grandma reprimands me, don't play with the fish. I think the fish heads are the best part of the salmon, very different from the rest. The meat inside is oily and the texture silky smooth. The only thing they need is a bit of salt. Grandma and I sit in our small kitchen not saying a word eating our tasty fishy fish heads until the meat of every last one of them is gone. Grandma sets fish steaks aside to cook for, the di for, for dinner as well. I often hear adults say, fried fish is best when it's fresh. She coats the fish in flour and then fries the steaks in a cast iron pan and serves it with white rice and store-bought sweet pickles on the side. When my mom and aunties walk in the door, they can tell by the smell they're in for a delicious meal. Work uniform and kerchief still on? My mom digs in. Lukal Demac, she says. It is very tasty. I don't like the skin though. I peel off my I peel mine off with my fork, hold it up and ask, who wants my skin? My mom holds her plate towards me. I drop the piece of skin on it and she says, that's the best part. Grandma often shares fish with our non-native neighbors as well. It's probably her way of saying thank you to them for mowing our lawn. They don't offer or ask to mow it. They just do it. After dinner, she asked me to go see if our neighbor could meet her at the fence between our houses. My grandma mostly speaks in our Somaliath language. So when the father of the family next door reaches what's left, what's remaining of our fence, they don't say much. Grandma smiles with her eyes. He smiles and nods in return and reaches over the fence to accept the big silvery sockeye from her. Words aren't necessary. The language of sharing salmon is simple. Thank you. So my first question for you is, who are you? Well, um, I feel like I'm now a writer and I guess, you know, I guess I could probably say I always was. I feel like Indigenous people are natural storytellers and I've always enjoyed uh, reading and writing growing up. So I'm really excited to 
to be here and to be, you know, it's, it's been not even a year yet since my, my book was published in October. So it's all brand new to me. The literary community, like everything is new. Um, and it feels good to be back in my my home community. I've been here for the summer, um, just doing some a little bit of work and 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 hanging out. So um yeah, I guess I'm almost like a blend of both those things, you know. I'm very much a part of my community. And I'm also looking to build new community and new, you know, networks. And so, yeah. Great. So I wanted to ask you about Prince Rupert. Uh, I didn't know you were there. I know you've been back and forth uh, visiting because we've, I think we've maybe Zoomed another time when you were in Rupert. Um, So the book is set in Prince Rupert and the setting plays an important part of the book. I I don't think it would be the same if it were set anywhere else. Um, (laughs) How has your relationship changed uh, to the community? I know kids often have a different feeling about the places they grew up, but, um, you know, what did you discover about Prince Rupert as you were writing about it? Uh, Well, I always, I've loved growing up in Prince Rupert and it's always um, had a very special place in my heart for me. And I think that um, there was definitely like such a rich culture and such a vibrant community in the 80s that I really wanted to capture that. It was a very unique time, you know, um, big high roller, highliner fisherman. There was a lot of money flowing through Rupert back in the day and um, specifically within the Indigenous community. So I really wanted to share that sort of part of BC's history with people. So it's kind of interesting that... You know, when I wrote Weird Rules to, to Follow, writing the stories, I felt like I was sharing my best stories, my, my family stories, you know, showing that we were just like everybody else growing up, say, you know, we owned our own home, we vacationed in, in Disneyland or Hawaii, you know, I read Judy Bloom just like everybody else. But then, um, you know, when the reviews came out, the, the literary reviews were very different. And I was like, kind of surprised because, you know, it's prejudice, you know, 1980s Prince Rupert. And, you know, I mean, I knew those stories were in there, but, you know, I didn't think they were the main theme of the story. I think anybody growing up in Prince Rupert in the 80s would say there was definitely no blatant racism in Prince Rupert at all. Um, there was quite a really, there was camaraderie between you know both groups of people so it was really interesting to me that a lot of the reviews that came back really highlighted um you know prejudice microaggressions and things like that but um that wasn't my wasn't my intention to me I think you know those experiences are let's say water off a duck's back for an Indigenous person, a day in the life of, you know, definitely not the focus of the story. But I mean, I'm glad that that's where people are going. That's what they're, if they're learning and taking away, you know, they're all valid. Yeah. It's interesting because there's those things that I think we write about that we don't even realize are there sometimes. Like it's just kind of, you know, you don't even, like you said, water off a duck's back. But even as a writer, it's like you probably didn't even, it was so just ingrained with who the characters were and those experiences that you wouldn't have even seen them. Exactly. Like you're sharing lived experience. Like 
meh, you know, yeah. like, yeah, that happened. I, you know, I, I barely thought anything of it probably until I started, you know, reflecting and thinking back and trying to write stories. So, yeah, but I mean, you know, I'm, I'm glad that it's, it's resonating. The stories are resonating with people and they're, um, you know, dissecting them. So, yeah, but I, but I, I always loved Rupert growing up and I've always come back you know, to visit, to do my, um, fam visit family, you know, do my sound in the summer. So I've always, um, yeah, been in touch, been cl closely yeah. you know, involved with the community. Yeah. Um, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned the reviews that talked about those, the, you know, the microaggressions and prejudice, because I wondered, uh, you said at the beginning of your reading that 1985, this book is set in the eighties, um, which of course is tied to your own experiences, but it also, I think, allows for you to explore these topics in a different way. I know in the back, you clarify some of the language. Um, it's not, these aren't words that we currently use. Uh, and so like some people might have a knee jerk reaction to those words if they're <laughs> not getting it in the context of the book. So I wondered how, you know, sticking in the eighties allowed you to explore some of those topics. Mm hmm. Um, so initially it was sort of this, my manuscript was written as memoir, very similar style, but, um, the short stories, but at the end I would reflect back. Um, I would be able to process or provide context or, you know, as an adult looking back. So, but because we went with, um, doing it for, for middle grade, a younger audience set in the eighties that definitely changed things. Uh, but I feel like it provided a really unique lens specifically for um, Indi Indi Indian residential school experiences um, because it got to talk about how in the 80s, nobody talked about residential schools. Growing up, you know, there's people in your in your family, your neighbors, you know, people who had gone through such traumatic, painful experiences, and yet nobody said a word. You know, in my book, it's like those schools and it's like whispered. So I feel like that um, could be, you know, a, a very powerful impact, like a lesson for people for a takeaway that that wasn't that long ago, even though it's considered historical <laughs> fiction. For me, it's like in my childhood, that was never talked about. So um, that was like, there's little pieces like that that I feel like are very valuable by having it set in the 80s. Yeah. I think even just like... Uh... I always find it interesting to remember the transition we've gone in terms of, you know, the language we used to talk about Indigenous communities from, you know, Indian to Indigenous. In my time, in my life, we've, you know, we've gone through it, all those words. And I think um, it speaks to that, that shift as well in how we talk about Indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. Ab Aboriginal, Native, like there's yeah. so many shifts. Yeah. Yeah. You talked a little bit about the the that the book started as memoir. I am so curious why you decided to make the shift to uh, to fiction because I know this is something. Uh, I'm I'm not sure if Joseph was one of your classmates who wrote My Indian Summer. Um, he wasn't. Okay, but I know he did a similar thing. I think his started as memoir and then shifted to fiction. So how did that decision happen for you? Um, well, I feel like, um, 
I had a few editors that read my manuscript. I had so much generous feedback and really, you know, people that I reached out to. It was amazing to me that they were emailing back like, hey, thank you. I appreciate reading your manuscript. You know, why don't you do this? Like somebody was like, you know, write younger, like think 12 year old, get in the 12 year old mind. And I would just get feedback like that. So from a couple of editors. Um, so that's kind of what I started doing. It was it was kind of scary. I think I just did a save as document before I started um, making that change. And then um, so then I got a mentorship and he said the same thing. Here's who I think you should send it to, you know, Orca kids write children's books. So then that was obviously a deciding factor. And they said the same thing. Yes. Like even continue again to write down to a younger audience. Um, so that's the route we went and then making it fiction. Um, it, well, before I go into fiction, but, but, um, also what I appreciated about doing the, the younger audience, um, is that it could reach, you know, like say middle grade. Um, I just feel like I grew up reading and enjoying reading and say, you know, Judy Bloom, the Sweet Valley High series, all these books. I have such an avid reader, but you never once did I ever see anybody that looked like me, similar experiences to, to me. So that was where it was really important to me to go with the younger audience that I really was happy that that's the route that I went. Um, and then for fiction, I, I was like, no, like, this is all true. I don't, I was very protective at first when they pitched it. Um, I didn't want to, but then suddenly it became this real flimsy little feeble barrier. <laughs> like I thought, Ooh, I could hide behind that, you know? Um, so it, it definitely felt like it gave me some distance from the stories and that, I mean, it's still such a vulnerable thing, but that little teeny bit, you know, helps for sure. So I, I like it now. I'm happy that that's the route we went. Yeah. What was it like to shift from what I assume was a much more adult voice, if you were writing memoir, to a preteen voice? Well, what happened was or my first read through of my manuscript, the editor, you know, I wouldn't say butcher, you know, but but she says in writing younger she says we lose a lot of that beautiful prose that you have. And so that was tough. That was tough. And a lot of some that I really strongly felt like, no, I'm not gonna get rid of this. And I just tried to really um, you know, play play around um with with how things were and even if I kept a sentence, you know, it would be not me, like amusing for me, like, oh, um, like, so the adults say, or I would change it to be. So that actually ends up being too what's fun about fiction is because, you know, when you're writing memoir, you have to stick exactly truth, 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 which I was. And then it's like, ooh, you got a little bit of freedom when you decide to go fiction. So that's kind of I, was something fun that I hadn't um, expected. Yeah. You talked about the the characters you saw in books growing up and and I'm I I love reading like middle grade preteen books because I think I mean I I haven't read one in a while but in my like memories of those books it seemed like there was a real gap in books for that age because maybe it is such a short time in our lives but um you know it seems to go from like kid books to teen books and then there's like nothing in between and just how 
important it is to capture that teen experience, that preteen experience to feel like those people are being seen in books too. Um, but I also imagine it it's challenge, like the challenges of capturing that experience and stepping back into that place. Did fiction help with that? Um, well, I would say that, I mean, like I said, the, the, the little minor tweakings that I did to make things fictionalized or were so, you know, it was not, there was not a lot of that, but I do feel like I really focused somehow on, um, like that sort of not like that, not even the teenage angst, but the, but the young person, you know? And so I feel like not even only indigenous people that are, the, the connecting with the stories but it's that sort of like you're saying that awkward phase um you know the shame like this internalized and that uh, getting those feel it almost feels like it's really getting those feelings out and people are like hey yeah uh, really connecting with the stories so um yeah i guess i guess for sure that um you know and then them reading it as fiction it could be easier to connect with rather than like if it's memoir, if it's, you know, um, that they would be, they can make it their own ex experience, see themselves maybe a bit more yeah. in the story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I really love the, you, you read it a few times for some of the school presentations, but that bologna sandwich story, because I think that <laughs> that's another one that I think um, for so many people resonates, especially people from different cultural groups where, you know, I've, I've heard of friends who bring, whatever is made at home to school and you know the kid with the peanut butter and jelly sandwich is like turning their nose up and making them feel bad for the food that they love and I just think you know those stories have such wide uh people just feel so recognized in those moments yes for sure for sure um like I was doing a reading I think it was for oh it was for the writer's fest and at a school and the librarians just like you know hand up every question <laughs> herself but she was like I was the kid with the alfalfa throats you know um and so yeah it's it's the the sort of like opposites or or the disparity, you know, it, it's people, whoever you are, whichever side you're on, you're going to be able to recognize maybe, especially um, in the 80s, you know, a lot of people are very nostalgic memory lane for sure. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about you. In When I asked who are you, you talked about your, that you're a writer. Um, could you talk a little bit about your journey as a writer uh, and how you're feeling about that word these days? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, well, I grew up, my mom was an avid reader, so she really encouraged me to read as a kid, which I'm so grateful for. And I just really loved that, say, growing up in small town Prince Rupert, you know, it just rained so much um you know it's such a small little world you drive to the to the last stop on highway 16 you know you can't go any further except for to jump on a ferry maybe to go to Haidaguay or Alaska so it just felt so remote so you know from the rest of the world so I loved how reading you know took me to far-flung corners of the world so um was definitely impactful being a, like they say how to be a good writer be a good reader so when I read my Sweet Valley High series, I wanted to be a news columnist, just like Elizabeth Wakefield. Um, so that's kind of where I, like 11, 12, I remember wanting to become a writer. Uh, then, you know, life happens and I became, uh, I was a young teen mom. So 
writing got pushed aside, but I always uh, wrote like um, poetry or short stories um, over the years. But uh, do you remember Flickr? I don't know if you were ever on Flickr. Yeah. (laughs) So it was just so artistic. And so like, oh, actually, I just seen about you. You're definitely an amazing photographer. So of course you would have been on Flickr. Um, and so I remember seeing um, a picture of like, you know, how it's so like bringing back the old, you know, all these retro things before they were sort of, you know, commonplace vintage furniture. And um, so I seen a picture of a banana seat bike. And then that's kind of when I like really stopped and thought about, you know, the story in my in my I have a, I wrote a story about which is on the cover, the banana seat bike. So that's kind of where it was like I started thinking about that story and thinking and it and you know in the back of my mind mulling it over thinking about my childhood friend who I hadn't lost track with spoiler alert you know for the end of the book so then that's kind of like hmm you know and that just got pushed to the back burner and then it wasn't till maybe you know 6 years ago or something that I started working less and less part time and all my days off um you know, having my morning coffee, I'd like, if I thought, then I started writing short stories, Salmon Season, specifically um, about firm salmon. And it was like thinking about how much salmon meant to me growing up. And um, that's kind of how that story came about, like started thinking about it. Then again, it was memoir, like, and then leading up to farm salmon about the loss, like, what if, what if this is how important it is to us? So um, yeah, and then I start writing those short stories here and there. And then suddenly I met a friend who had gone to um, the writer studio at SFU and recommended I apply. And so then they're like, send us your portfolio. I'm like, well, I don't have a portfolio. (laughs) So I just started cutting and pasting all my short stories and put it in documents, sent it, got accepted and bam, you know, and I kid you not, like almost verbatim, you know, the opening stories are exactly what I sent by cutting and pasting stories. So maybe, you know, changed the flow a little bit. But so, yeah, it really came about, I feel like, quite organically. It's definitely not. I, I know that everyone else's writing sort of trajectory doesn't really happen that smoothly and in that short of a time period. Say, I'd say when I started the writing, um, the writer studio, till my book was published on shelves was I think two years oh wow yeah so so I've been fortunate and super grateful yeah what does it mean for you to call yourself a writer now well it's still it's still it's not like I feel like I have imposter syndrome or (laughs) definitely nothing like that but I you know like say the bad bad feminist I feel like I'm a bad writer (laughs) because because I don't write every day. I don't, you know, actually, but being up here, I really have been because I think it's much of a slower pace. And I'm not somebody who does, I'm probably getting into maybe questions a little bit later on, but I'm not somebody who, you know, writes a rough, rough draft. Really, I can't go on until it's super, uh, my favorite quote of all time is um, James Baldwin's ear sentence should be clean as a bone. And I love that so much. And so I can't move on. So that's where I guess I feel like I'm a bad writer because, you know, I've been started started something in August and I'm barely at like 23,000 words. So, yeah. I don't, I think you are, I often like, 
I was actually complaining to my partner this morning about like all these myths about writing and publishing. And <laughs> I think, uh, you know, I think someone like writes an internet article or gets like interviewed about it, about something writing related, like you must write every day or the only way to write your first draft is to like write the whole thing and go back. It's like, but no, but come on, like we're all so yeah. different and we write different stories. And, you know, I remember hearing Alicia Elliott say like, she edits as she goes along and you know <laughs> Lorna Crozier because she's a poet like even when she writes her memoir stuff she's like every word must be perfect and so it's like how can we there's no right or wrong way to do the thing we just have to like do it it's hard enough without like living up to arbitrary <laughs> expectations of what it means to be a writer very true. Very true. Because say my favorite, one of my favorites, um, you know, I definitely love Hemingway's The Old Man in the Sea. And it's so, the writing is so sparse, you know, so I feel like when I'm reading my own, it's like, it has to be so tight and, you know, nothing extra. So yeah, you know, it's, it's really true. And I did think that this morning too, that there is definitely no right or wrong way to writing. <laughs> no. And like, you know, I think to you know, Hemingway or other people, uh, they, the, these people had a life that was so different than like yours or mine. I, uh, you know, Hemingway was not a single mom, didn't have to put the writing away, just got to drink daiquiris and write. I mean, that's not the reality for so many of us. So, yeah. 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 I know. And like that whole thing about his, um, is it the movable feast? Like, is it, is it, uh, fiction is it not like you know and so so definitely that was a nice easy cushy life if it is exactly. <laughs> not you know of course different times for sure yeah yes so you're you are a writer and you're, yeah. you're struggling just like the rest of us isn't that should be like the indicator <laughs> yeah for sure for sure like I don't um you know and it's funny is because I had um have been off you know was fortunate to be sort of off work for I, I left my day job you know two and a half years ago and so I've been so I've been I've been doing I don't do anything oh I don't work I don't <laughs> friends and my partner always correcting me like uh yes you you do work and you work real hard you know and it's like so many things that I had happened and we listed them all off you know busy working and doing this and going to school because I had just finished the writers the um the second portion of that in in March so yeah it's definitely well I guess maybe just because it's um fun you know if you love it you like writing I enjoy it um you know, when I can't do it, I know I can't do it. I don't even try. Yeah. So like, say, when I finished my program at the um, the grad program at, at SFU, I um, didn't write probably till I, till I came here. So July, March to July. And then now, so then suddenly it was, um, it just started flowing. Of course, I'm always jotting down. I think you were on that reading when I was talking about writing and the kids are asking me, but I'm saying, even when you're not writing, you're writing. Yeah. I'm writing notes. I'm trying to get into that mindset by listening to, I use music a lot in my writing, especially when I'm writing about a specific time period. So yeah. Yeah. I'm just waiting for my special question. That's there all. Is no special question yeah. this year. Yeah, there, there is. I heard you ask something about a book or movie. That was last something. year's question. There's no oh, question this year. 
all and all. Oh man! My question this year, I've just been saying, I've been starting every podcast with "Who are you?" and that's that is my question this year. <laughs> okay, so I over prepared for the last year's question. Sorry, you can say that's what so it is funny. if you want, seeing as you prepared. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was just, I think, what was the question again about about a movie or could, book? I think uh, last year it was, I think, <laughs> if you could read one book or only watch one movie for the rest of your life, what would it be and why? <laughs> Thank you. Bringing that there back. There you go. You can so answer. Grandfather in. <laughs> uh, so I'm so ready with, I wasn't even a book. It's too hard to choose, but my all time favorite movie of all time is Moonstruck. Um, you know, and it's like, I don't know why, but a lot of my movies that I love are all really, you know, East Coast movies, this sort of New York vibe, that energy. So yeah, that. <laughs> that's one how, how could you not love share for sure is Nicolas Cage in that one too he is he is yeah and if you haven't seen it in a while I mean there's a whole New Yorker article on how imperfect and that movie is and yet why you know it doesn't I mean I think it's maybe going to start having a cult following but it's a classic for sure in my books <laughs> that was Kim Spencer Kim is the author of Weird Rules to Follow, which is a finalist for the 2023 Sheila A. Egoff Children's Literature Prize. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram, and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Marion Ehrenberg, Marion is the author of The Language of Dreams, a finalist for the 2023 Ethel Wilson Fiction Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.